0: Me, 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 Drop me. it down
1: like 10 decibels. Yeah. <laughs> like. I, I feel
0: like I have to, like, accentuate my voice now that my beard's gone. <sighs> uh, hello, hey. <laughs>
1: Hi, All this right. is my I have a beard <laughs> voice. <laughs> this is my I, I no longer <laughs> have a
0: beard voice. This is the
1: Nashville Podcast. Hey,
0: everybody. Welcome back to NashDev. We're a podcast about software engineering and the Nashville developer community. Today's hosts are Jason Norendorf, Rodney Norris, and I'm William Golden.
1: And I'm Corey Elliott. Today we have two guests. We'll have Sonny Scroggin talking about cross-site scripting and JavaScript, and Tim Pote talking about the importance of testing.
2: I'm Sonny Scroggin. I work for a company called Bluebox, um, and we work on uh, cloud uh, infrastructure kind of stuff. So,
0: Do you think they bought it just because it was named Bluebox?
2: That's a good question, actually. Big blue, right? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that had anything to do with it. but <laughs> Maybe uh, a little bit. Maybe just a tad, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. I mean, not much has changed for us. We're building kind of single-page, front-end JavaScript applications. And uh, we had a discussion in, uh, internally with my team about whether or not you could kind of like hijack uh, some internal state from like maybe like a react application that's being bundled with like browserify or or gulp or webpack or whatever you know and so the whole question was whether or not you could actually reach into like your application where it's compiled into a closure and have access to like internal variables or or internal state within that application so and that's kind of like where i asked mr right. jason Orndorff about that Hi.
3: so um yeah, and and and, I, and it, it so happens that I know all those words. <laughs> <laughs> um so the first answer I gave was oh if if you're if 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 all your variables are inside of a closure. Yeah, there's no way anybody can access that. You're great. Everything's good.
2: Which is what I thought already. I was trying to
3: actually like And then yeah. I realized that that I was totally wrong about that. About <laughs> that. Um so okay, so and, and and actually, like this is actually how the conversation went. Is we had to take a step back and talk right. about like what it actually is that we're talking about. So, what kind of data did you have that was actually sensitive that you needed to protect? So,
2: the the whole idea was that we wanted to store kind of like a an auth token, you know, for for making requests to additional backends or whatnot. To you know, say. I've got an auth token from my from my auth server, but now I need to make a an API request on my front end to, you know, some other service that we have or that we own.
3: This thing is like this is a this is this is a string, and it's just like random digits yeah. or something. Yeah, like a but
2: JWT it, token or you know uh-huh. something
3: like that. So so it's it's a glorified cookie, right? Essentially, only it's it's valid across like maybe 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 your your JavaScript code has to talk to lots of services, right. To get the information it needs, and all those services are able to validate this magic string Correct. and know that it's you. So it's
1: like a CSRF token.
3: And that's exactly why this, this information is sensitive, right? Like this, this string is yeah. the keys to the entire backend. Right. right? Or as far as that user is concerned. So the question then is, what if somehow, by some other unrelated bug, evil code gets into this browser tab. Right? right. So, in other words, like, what if we accidentally load some script, and it happens to be that it the script, something. the script wants to write. The script wants to is, is written by ha- hacker. Right. Or your page is vulnerable to XSS attacks. Right. Yeah. Um, and they they want to get at this access token. Can they get it? Uh, and you know, I guess the answer is you have to be really careful. Right. So, yeah, so
2: once we kind of discussed that, and it was, the question was, okay, so if somehow you could monkey patch something from the outside of your, you know, your bundled, like, application code, um, maybe, like, if you're doing an XHR request to the back end to fetch some remote service, and now uh, the code that the browser uses to actually do that, like window.fetch or whatever, you know, is there a way that you could potentially, like, fake that out and cause the, you know, the, the browser to actually do what it's supposed to do, but then you also are, like, hijacking in, in the middle, like, listening, man-in-the-middle attack, I guess, right?
3: Well, right, so in practice, what it looks like is I asked you, okay, so how are you actually talking to the server? Like, what are you actually doing using, what are you using this token for? How are yeah. you doing it?
2: yeah, so the idea is that, you know, okay, I have, you have your application and it needs to bootstrap itself and get some data from the server. And maybe part of that bootstrapping process, it it goes and, you know, says, hits like a slash me endpoint, for instance, you know, and then the server will respond back with like, okay, here's all the data about you and maybe some other extra data that you need to, you know, load the page or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then also here's this access token that you can use to kind of make requests to different services, yeah. so.
3: And then yeah. I was like, okay, that, that's what we want, access token. So how are you, what's the actual function call? Like, what are you doing? How are you getting that web, that, that, that URL? Like, what, yeah. are you, what are you doing to get it? And the answer was fetch, right, fetch function. Right. Okay, so the fetch function is just this JavaScript function, right, you call it, you give it a URL, it gives you back the data later. Um, so I was like, okay, I bet we can hack this. So we tried it, right? We, we like we wrote a little you know a, a, like a fake evil javascript script <laughs> right. <clears throat> and uh and we 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 replaced the 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 browser's fetch function with another function cuz you can do this. Like everything's mutable in javascript. You can change all the functions and all the methods that are built in. Um so we just changed the fetch function to a different function.
2: Um, Essentially, yeah.
3: We still made
2: it do the right, do the real thing, but yes. added logging, for instance. Right. Yeah. So,
3: so right. So what we did is we just logged the the URL. Is that right? Or just all the arguments that you pass in. We just logged those. Yeah. And
0: this still worked, even though, even if fetch happened to be loaded in as a dependency, like an enclosure? So that's, that's that's the next
3: interesting oh, okay. part, I guess. Yeah. Well, it didn't. Yeah, we did. We failed. Yeah, we failed to hack at that it. That didn't way. work actually. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah, we, I
2: thought it worked at first. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is working!"
3: Because you when you, you, you test it in the console, in console, yeah, because yeah, it's not in the closure.
2: It, yes, it
3: works. Yeah.
2: So then I actually, you know, I have a like a front end, like a React app with like Redux and React Router, and of course had a had a link I could click on to verify that you know. And it took you four days to so get that running right. If it <laughs> oh, just about yeah, <laughs> gosh. Sorry. Uh, you know, click on the link to make it actually like you know an action to change the route and whatnot. Um, and so it w- should have done another fetch, which then I was expecting to see in the console that there would be some console logging out- output, and there wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hmm, I guess it didn't actually I guess it <laughs> I guess, I didn't guess is, like doesn't know what
3: he's talking about after all. Yeah. So, so first I want to go back a step because I, I want to make sure it's clear that if you saw that line in your console, if it showed up, that means that I, the evil hacker, have won. Right. Right. It, like all I have to do is get just dim, I'm, the reason I use console. log is because it's the easiest possible thing. But all I need to do is get my hands on that cookie to fire off requests of my own evil requests to your servers. Right. The next thing was, so how do we, how do we how do we then hack this application? Fetch is protected. Right. Because we yeah, figured out why. You knew why right away.
2: Right. Well. So. Well, I don't know why, I just haven't I have an idea of what I think it's the reason is, and that is that somehow inside of the bundled application the fetch is like somehow memoized, right? Yeah. Um and so it won't use the external
3: Yeah, you're menu. using a polyfill for fetch and it's being bundled in with your app. So right. you're not using the global window dot fetch anyway.
0: Right. All right. So, so I'm curious if you could hijack uh, the JSON module Ooh. and hijack like how, like JSON parse or right. JSON loads yeah. or something, or yeah, this is the right thought. Yeah.
3: Like we we can we can definitely do it, right? We all like, figured out that at some point you're going to be talking you're going to be talking to like a, a XHR. A you're right. going to be talking to a built-in somewhere, and whatever that is, we can hack it, right? Yeah. So like actually like the I think the best the best hack is Promise prototype.next Next. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, that great. Yay, JavaScript. Yeah. The like I guess the moral of the story is, if evil code is running in your browser, like it's already too late. Yeah. Like, you've lost. Soil and greenest people. <laughs> they are out to get you. You're making fun of my dramatic technique. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Village people. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So then we talked about like what is what is the real way? Like, what should you really be doing, right? To um, protect yourself. To, yeah. Right. Not to hack.
1: The and can you ever be one hundred percent
3: protected? Right. Right. So, okay. So the right way to the right way to do it, I think, is uh, is to protect yourself from cross site scripting attacks as much as you can. Um. And so I want to talk about this feature. And I guess if you read, I I told you about this. Mm-hmm but I don't actually know anything about it. So if you've read (laughs) anything, you now know more than me. Oh, cool. I just know the name. It's called Content Security Policy. Right,
2: yeah. Uh, Yeah, so Content Security Policy is um, something that's new. Well, I guess it's not new. It's been, in the last few years, it's been slowly being adopted by all browsers. And uh, essentially what it is is that you can, when you render your, your page, you can actually set some headers And one of them is this content security policy header. And it has a bunch of different attributes that you can apply to it. And it's incredibly configurable. Like you can tell it, you can tell the browser, yeah, go ahead and allow all images to be loaded at, you know, this URL. Um, but you can apply like different wildcards and things like that. Um, so you can really lock down the browser from even being able to, uh, request images from specific servers. Um, you can, you can prevent the browser from loading any JavaScript outside of script tags that are, you know, actually have a source on them and are being pulled in from the, the correct website. Um, so you can, you can prevent, um, script tags that have, you know, JavaScript in the, in the, you know, in the contents of the, of the script tag itself. So, um, and so you can, you can actually set your, your content security policy to be extremely like prohibitive yeah. so that only the stuff that you know and want to run on your site is running mm-hmm. and anything else is is uh, disabled. Right. And then you can kind of, so it's more like it's a white, you can set it up as a whitelist, and then you right. can kind of backtrack from there and, and make it possible to, you know, run other code that you know is potentially safe.
3: Yeah, right, so I mean the, the whole idea is that that in order to get evil code running in your browser, well that had to come from somewhere, right? And the typical place that it comes from is these, like, super cheesy security hacks. Like, this is, I mean, it's 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 depressing how widespread this is, but if you have anything on a web page that is controlled by users at all, any kind of user content, comments, or just somebody else's user ID, if that appears on any web page, um, then that user making that comment or choosing that username has the ability to to pick what shows up on the website and if your server isn't treating that very carefully they could put a script tag in there in their comment they could have a malicious username right and as soon as it as soon as it appears in sunny's browser um that script runs in his browser right even though it's your username
1: can your malicious username be cookie monster (laughs)
0: Yeah, could
2: be. And could speaking be like, of cookies, right? I mean, that's that's one of the ways that that people, you know, kind of hack with with cross site scripting is they can you know grab the cookies and stuff like that. So there's a very specific way that you should store your cookies, and that's through HTTP only uh, or HTTPS only, which is the secure flag on it, right? So
3: this is oh, when you set so, a cookie, you should you should do this. Yeah, so I that prevents
2: so that prevents Uh, JavaScript from being able to do document.cookie and actually getting access to all the cookies on the page. So, uh, yeah, so if you don't lock that down by specifying how the cookie is stored in the browser with HTTP only, Mm -hmm. and then there's a secure true option. Mm -hmm. Um, So secure true means that when you're making a request to the backend server, if the cookie is set to secure true, it won't send that cookie unless it's HTTPS. So. Yeah.
3: So this is this is mainly something that your framework does if it's setting a cookie. Is that right? Is that right?
2: Yeah. So your server uh, rendering the, the the page and setting a cookie on the on the response itself, right? So, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And telling the browser, hey, set this cookie.
3: But this is cool because that that framework, if they're using this flag, and they should be. Um, then it's totally transparent to you. You never see it. Right. You never. You never even have to care about it. It's just you're more secure because now evil JavaScript, if it happens to get into your website, can't grab the cookie. Exactly. Yeah. I th- what What I th- What I like best about content security policy is even though not every browser supports it, it's kind of this backstop. Um, and in security they talk about defense in depth, right? Which means um, that if I- your website obviously shouldn't have any holes in it where somebody can inject evil html or evil scripts into your into your users websites, right? Uh, or into your user the pages that your user sees. But if they did, if they if they managed to get some like unfiltered html into your page, content security policy will shut them down anyway. And that's what's that's what's so good about it. So right. so even if there are some browsers that aren't supported yet and I think I think all of the it's current pretty ones much are. Yeah. But like IE9, IE8 don't support it. I think maybe even IE10 and 11. Um, that's still OK. Your users will still get a perfectly functional website. They'll just be a little bit less secure in the unlikely case that you have other r- bugs, right? The, yeah. The, uh, and, and of course, everybody else gets the security advantage right away. Right. Yeah. So okay, but but to go back to this, like there, there's actually a much much easier way. Like the the the, the usual way that if somebody can get evil scripts into your page, you've already lost. Is that they can just they can just do whatever it was that your app was going to do. They can just do the same thing. Right. So in your case, you've got this access code. Well, maybe they can't get their hands on that access code, but they can send the same request to the server that you just sent. Right. And the server will say, oh hello again. And send them a new one. <laughs> sure. So yeah, right. Long story short, short, don't don't do it. Use content security policy.
1: So do iframes uh, yeah. lead to just as much of a, a security breach as they would be solving in that?
3: This is a good question. So yeah, so so iframes, if you if you load evil code in an iframe, the the one thing you got going for you is what's called the same domain policy. Right. So what this means is that the browser if you load a URL from evil.com, it has access to all of the evil.com cookies and all the evil.com like local state and stuff, right? What it doesn't have access to is anything from any other domain. This is why you can use like What's a crummy website? Like, you can use BuzzFeed in Nash one tab. NashDevCast.com. You can, you, can, you can go <laughs> to NashDevCast.com in one browser tab, and in the next browser tab, the very same browser, you can be, like, logged into your bank, um, and yet you have some confidence that we won't be able to steal all your money. Uh, the reason is because we have no way of knowing that the other tab exists, what your credentials are with that website, or anything. Ideally, um, we can't even access We can't even tell you've ever visited that website.
0: Deal, <laughs> dude.
1: Thanks for listening. After a short break, we'll come back with Tim Pote to talk about testing part two. Part two. Part two. ducks. Ducks. <laughs> the testing redux.
0: Redux. 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 Redux is great. <laughs>
1: right
0: now, okay. So uh, Tim's going to talk, l- talk to us a little bit about. Um, what it means to him to be uh, a developer and in
4: testing. It's funny, because I'm actually going to turn the tables. Um, I'm going to flip the tables. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Uh, I, I wanted to first ask uh, what it is you meant by, by that, right? Because you kind of... Um, and, and this was... So uh, I don't know if I need to say this again, but the background of this is we were on Slack, and somebody came out swinging with that exact statement, right? It's an ethical imperative to... Aut- automate testing of your code, and um, and so we had a long conversation about it. This was months ago, um, and uh, so so when it came up again in the in the first in the first episode, it was, and it was that exact phrase again, right? Automated. It's ethical imperative to automate the testing of your code. Um, I, I just really wanted to first of all give my opinion about it, yes, but also dig into why. Why it is that important to you and to you know, anyone else, who, else who, who feels that way? I
0: guess I should back up a little bit. I don't think it's important for it to be automated. Um, I do think there should be some kind of test suite that you can run as a developer. Um, and the reason I think so is because it shows that there is a, a system in place, a system of checks and balances that what you intended to happen is actually happening. And it's basically that, well, uh, uh, and that's that's wait, it in so, a nutshell, I guess. So um,
4: you don't. So the conversation was framed around TDD. So my initial assumption, and so maybe we all agree here. My initial assumption was was that you know, TDD and automated testing was the the imperative, right? The, the oh uh, no, the I, so maybe I, I like I said in the podcast
0: I don't do TDD. I test my code and I do unit tests and and all that stuff, and I do, but I do that after I write my code, uh, or like in in the middle. I don't use it as a design principle or, or a methodology to actually inform how I write my code. Right.
4: Does um, so that make sense? You no, know, that, that that totally makes sense. Um, my, I, I guess I was extrapolating, for, you said that in the in the podcast, so it wasn't really about TDD, but it was um, around this idea of testing being an ethical, like I assumed that I kind of carried the testing part of that over into the conversation, right? So automating the tests of your code was the ethical imperative, so that's not your Real not the automated part no I think that might have been Jason that said the automated okay. um,
0: but I think automated helps because it makes it a, an easier system to maintain and to and to actually get feedback on okay and
1: um, well, it makes it easier for anybody to run
0: right yeah and, and you know you, you merge a commit into a branch the tests will run you'll get to see feedback you'll see okay I broke the build or I didn't right mm-hmm. um, the ethical side of it again it's it's if you don't write tests you're relying on your own evaluation of your own code right so there's there's a chance that yeah you think the code's doing what it's doing but unless you're are testing that code um you're not catching all the cases that could potentially go wrong and you could probably say well you're probably just a terrible programmer <laughs> um but i think that the codes can the code tests can actually catch things that you didn't anticipate and also when a, a user or when a um a programmer comes in and makes changes to your code there there's a little bit of a safety net there right
1: there's not just a safety map, but also uh, I feel like it makes more clear what your intent was for that function. Sure.
4: Yeah, yeah. So all of that I think is um, absolutely the case, and it's um, it's useful for a lot of things. But um, the the thing that I, I kind of want to stress is that there's a there's a real cost to that, right? There's it's there's a real time cost, and you're carrying whatever design you you've tested forward, right? There's a there's a there's now a cost because this whatever you're you've um invested a ton of time into testing and you've invested a ton of time into that you're much less likely to to fundamentally shift that because you have a lot of tests around it right um so so either you you add the cost of changing all those tests or you you throw away whatever you've invested right one or the other um so so that was that was kind of my initial thinking about the whole thing. It's like it's not always um, the best thing to do with your time, right? It's it is there's benefits, um, but but again, my interpretation was that y- you raise that to the level of ethical imperative to to automate the testing your code or write test suites.
1: So, it's, do you differentiate based on what the application's intent is? Like, I, I feel like it's an ep- ethical imperative if you're, you know, programming an airplane, but not so much if you're, like, writing somebody's blog.
4: Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, y- yes, I think you should absolutely, like, you, it's totally a case-by-case case thing. You use it for for whatever. Here's, um, here's what I think that kind of ethical imperative is, is uh, you need to prove to yourself that your code fulfills the contract that you've agreed that it should, right? Whatever that means. And, and if, if, I mean, especially early on, that's, that gauge is going to be pretty low, right? So you get better at it as you go on. Um, But the airplane example is a really interesting one because uh, I sent around a, an article about the people at JPL who used to, this is, their article was written in 96. uh, And it was about how they uh, drove down errors in the, the code base that they were in, because they really couldn't afford to have errors, right? This is space flying, right? And uh, nothing in that article were methodologies that we use today, methodologies or tools or whatever, right? They didn't talk about FP, they didn't talk about, uh, sorry, functional programming, right? they about programming, they didn't talk about object oriented programming, they didn't talk about unit testing, they didn't talk about um, static typing. Right. All these things that we kind of tout as, oh, this is going to make it our code correct, kind of provably correct or whatever, right? That, that That's not what it was about at all.
0: Sure, but they also have an entire team of quality assurance analysts and, and an entire team of people that's going to check to make sure that this stuff is good. Exactly. And so... In modern – on modern teams, you might not have the luxury of having an entire team to test to see if the code you're committing on a billing script that runs on a Wednesday at 3 a.m. is going to run correctly. And that's where I I think the ethical thing comes in. If I'm writing a billing script that's going to charge, you know, 50,000 customers that evening on their credit card, uh, I want to make sure that, you know, there's no rounding errors. I want to make sure that, you know, all the code that's running
4: is running correctly so there's no issues, Right. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, they, they, um, well, first of all, th- th- what you just said about making sure there's no rounding errors, making sure there's no billing problems, right? That's, that's the fundamental kind of goal. No matter, no matter how your approach, what your approach is, we all want to reach that, right? Um, um but you're right in saying it was expensive, right? They, they had like a budget of like millions of dollars and multiple years, I think like five to 10 years or something like that. But the other thing they did, besides you know heavily human human test things, was heavily you know spend time on design and process, right before they started running code. So whoops, sorry. So those are the two things that that they spent all of their capital on, right? It wasn't any of the things that we're talking about today, Um, and I'm not saying the point is not that everybody should spend that capital, right? The point is that's what it takes to write perfect software. Right? It, it, the, I think they made the right decision. And this is also, this is not pr- proven, right? I just thought it was interesting that this, this particular team went that route because I think that it gets down to the fundamentals of, of how to write proper and correct programs. It's not, um, well, you just do this practice and all of a sudden your billing program is correct. It's, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've spent a lot of time designing it, vetting the, the idea Sure. And and I'm, I I would
0: argue that you're going to do that. Hopefully you're doing that anyways. I I don't think that tests are a replacement for good design at all. I think that they are, uh, like I said, they're a safety net. They're um, a confidence, uh, a confidence booster. And when you make a change, you know that the other parts of your system are unaffected and you could argue that, well, if you're designing your interfaces correctly, that there would, in the boundaries, your bounded contexts are, are, are there that you won't affect other parts of the system. But you know, in reality, we're a human, right? And we're and we're under deadlines, and we're being pushed to get code out the door. Realistically, tests are a thing that we need to do because we sometimes we don't have the six months leading up to a project to design something as a per- perfect system. Sometimes we have to go into a, a, this ugly code base that's been exist that that's existed for six or seven years that wasn't exactly designed in the best way, right? You, you've, you got hired onto a company and, you know, you're the 15th engineer to touch this part of the code. You might not have enough time to refactor that code and into the best way to be the perfect bounded context. So for me, ethically, I'm going to go in and go into that code and I'm going to write tests around it. Right. So that I know that if I think that function is doing that thing, it's doing that thing. Right. So then when I go make a change, I know that it's still, it's still working correctly.
4: Um, yeah, I think I think we actually 100% agree with one. I think you basically covered, you know, everything that I would have said to, in response to that, right? Uh, I, I There are situations where it becomes, it, m- if not an ethical imperative, again, the goal is to convince yourself that you know what you're doing, right? The goal is to convince yourself that w- what you did was correct. And um, if you can't do that without some kind of safety net, right, that's, okay, now it's your job to do that, right? And then you have to factor that into the, the total cost of the thing and you communicate those costs. Um, but yeah, so maybe I, should, maybe I should concede to say <laughs> that um,
0: maybe it's not testing that is ethical imperative. Maybe it is uh, having something in place to have confidence in your code. So some maybe set it, of it, checks and balances. Some kind of checks and balances. So maybe it's not testing... For me it's testing, but maybe maybe so maybe I shouldn't just blanket <laughs> blanket <it laughs> statement for every developer, but for me as an ethical developer, my personal
4: opinion is is to have test. Um uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say oh no, you're wrong. Um no please do. Please do.
0: <laughs> but we gotta get views on this podcast or listens or whatever the hell an, they're called. an alternative view. <laughs> an al- we need some arguments on here. <laughs> we can we can go out in the parking lot with so if we set up this. If we want
1: arguments, we can like talk about tabs or spaces. <laughs> tabs and
0: spaces. It's all spaces. Emacs and, and The important. <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> and throw it out there. It's spaces. It's okay, spaces. Okay. If you're using tabs,
5: no. <laughs> Please don't kill me. So, um, speaking of costs, we had a question from Cliff about the costs of using other people's
6: code. All right. Hold on. Are you ready? Hi, this is Cliff Anderson. Just uh, repeating a thought that we had at uh, NashFP on. Uh, uh, Tuesday night. The The idea is that looking for information is a cost. And so that when you're looking for um, the quality of a function, uh, you have to incorporate the costs of investigating its quality. And, and a lot of times uh, that might be more costly than writing the function yourself. So uh, in some cases, uh, we tend to rely on the the reputation uh, as a proxy for um, for the uh, quality, but in other cases, especially when we don't know the authors, we need to be looking for um, uh, signs about the quality itself. Actually, by reading the code, and that information-seeking behavior is a transaction cost that uh, may actually exceed, in some cases, the cost of writing the function itself. So that's a thought that came up at Nash FP. Uh, glad to share it. Uh, uh, thanks a lot. Bye.
0: It's a little like Schrodinger's cat, right? Like, you don't know what you got until you got it. (laughs) So, yeah,
4: yeah, no, absolutely. It's a tough, it's a tough problem. I feel like
1: it depends on what the dependency does. You know, if it's the left padding drama, um, you know, obviously that one's something that's really easy to do yourself.
4: So, this is a little not fair because this question actually came out of a talk that I did um, about left pad, honestly. And, and yeah, that was about Trump. (laughs) <laughs> That's all I remember too. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> um yeah, yeah, and the, it it is a really interesting problem, right?
5: Like um y- So if if we want to rephrase this question a little bit just so it's a little bit easier to understand like uh-huh. the context of the question and where it came from, we it's it's basically around, you know, investigating the usage of your dependencies and making sure that they're valid and there's a cost to that to the team, the organization, I, I would argue to bet a lot of people that, that goes straight to debt. <laughs> uh, and that's where the reputation comes in. People in some communities, especially, uh, you know, that there's things that are just assume they're good because they're the de facto standard, you know, everyone uses that. So there's not a lot of investigation behind those dependencies. Uh, I think that the left pad issue is an interesting one because of how NPM and the node ecosystem came about. It's all, you know, small dependencies small libraries are very um valued that you have one library that is one thing really well and then you share that and there may be multiple of them is how it ends up working out in note um so is is that like an accurate representation of the context of the discussion
4: yeah That so that's that was um cliff's kind of um where he went with it and mm-hmm. that's absolutely absolutely the case um the the discussion itself was about those values, right? So you pointed out that you know, NPM had some set of values that um, that led them to think that this was a great idea, right? And well, node in general, it's kind of like right, yeah, right. So my talk was about like how to do, how do those values come about, not so much about um, the actual transaction costs mm-hmm. of um, of a thing. Which it is a really interesting question because, um, like like what you brought up, reputation matters, right? that matters we use that in in economics today right like you you go you know the quality of food you're going to get at taco bell right <laughs> you don't have to like try it yourself to know really <laughs> although we all have but um i assume even if even if somebody here is never this episode is brought to you by taco bell yeah exactly. <laughs> well i probably should <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs>
4: Baco tell
5: <laughs>
4: i don't know if we get in trouble
5: so, but, so given the context of that question um and, and the, the way he led it with sometimes it's cheaper to in, to implement that function yourself what do you think about that there's a little bit of social proof there right like we have
0: known repositories known projects that are like okay you're gonna do X you probably use this project and um, you know you look at the stars you look at how many open issues there are you look at the pull request you see that it's an actual actively maintained project and you know more than likely it's going to be Uh, quality code especially if they have a a decent contributing guideline and all that stuff but you know when you get into something like like you you all said about like left pad or you know these little tiny utility functions um it's kind of hard to evaluate right like if you go and look at the function and it's a, a 19 line function and you're like well crap i could have just wrote this do you just write it at that point right do you
5: but I think part of the argument there is also like, especially with the left pad issue, it's, it's kind of unique in the NPM eco- ecosystem. I would venture to guess a lot of people who broke because of that did not ber- break because they were depending on left pad.
1: Their dependencies depended <laughs> on dependencies. But
5: yeah, like th- their dependencies depended on dependency that depended on dependency. Like I think in case of like Babel, they depended on line numbers that depended on left pad. So it was like several, several Just least deep in the dependency up. tree that depended on that. And I, I definitely heard an argument with, the case of that from several people in the community that like sure it was a fourteen line function but how many people who wrote it themselves would have wrote it as efficiently and handled that handled you know certain things that way and
1: didn't somebody yeah, end it's, up it's, writing it more efficiently yeah, though yeah
5: somebody quite did, like, like, like a yeah. ton of tests around it yeah. <laughs> yeah now but but in in the case of like a lot of dependencies you know th- that that argument can be made um, a lot of times the edge
0: cases you're not going to think of all the edge cases yeah. and someone that's like actually spent some time to to write a, a package around uh, whatever feature. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, if they're using a production, they're going to hit those edge cases before you do. So it's it's kind of like, hey, let's let's stand on the sh- shoulders of giants a little bit and use something that's been proven, battle-tested, mm-hmm. right?
4: I mean, the real question, though, is how do you find those, right? That's reputation. kind of like a trial and error, error thing, right?
0: Your your reputation, reputation is the only feasible thing right now, I guess. Right. And, 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 or
4: you read it and try and assess it yourself, um, which maybe is what your obligation is. I don't, I don't, if and I don't feel, feel like
1: there's also instances where there's a, a level of complexity that um, somebody who specializes in that area could achieve much better than, you know, somebody who is much more general. Um,
4: no, I think that's absolutely the case, right? If, if you, like, the left pad one is great. It's really great because it is a joke to write right. a left padding <laughs> function, right? Um, but if you have something where, like, it's doing sentiment analysis or natural language processing, then it's really easy to be like, I, I'm never going to be an expert in this. So whatever it's I use is tokenizing. better than me. Let's just, yeah, let's
0: yeah. just go with the <laughs> obvious example, right? Are you going to write your own uh, hashing algorithm, right? Are you going to write your own, you know, HMAC or yep. whatever, right? Like, I'm going to go and find... Bcrypt. crypt Yeah, b I'm going to go find a known entity that's, that is a cryptolo- cryptologist that has credentials that can do this, right? Because... You know, back in my early days, I might have, like, used the built-in MD5 hash and, you know, like, had a, a crappy salt and called it a day. But, like, nowadays, it's, it's expected that you're, you know, I guess it's always been expected, but I just didn't know any better.
4: Yeah, that's an interesting example. So, like, the whole, uh, w- the discussion that we had was, uh, kind of came out that it was based on, I don't know if you yet heard of it, the Coase's theory of the firm, right? It was a paper written in, like, the 30s. In economics, where he talks about this exact thing, right, where, where um, I, I, oh, I don't remember exactly how it how it had to do with the firm, but when he was talking about transaction costs in general, right, you, um, when the transaction costs, when you, the the potential benefit for a thing way outweigh the transaction costs, and you accept the transaction costs, right, you accept the time that I need to investigate whatever the best hashing algorithm is, because the potential loss here, if I don't do it right, is huge, right? So the, your gains are big, your costs are relatively small. So that's a really good example of, um, you know, this con- kind of concept at play.
0: Yeah, and that kind of comes full circle back to the, the talk about um, testing, right? Like what we had before, like, if, my, if, our, if our entire business relies on this set of feature to work exactly as prescribed, if it deviates just a little bit, we could be overbilling, we could be underbilling, we could be doing something just devastating to the business, right? And um, so, uh, I, g- I guess I'm kind of jumping back on the test train again, but like that's where I think having a, gr- a great QA team and also testing would really help mitigate some of that, um, some of that failure. But to go back to the dependency thing, right? Um, it's I guess the, the general con- general conversation is like how do we actually vet things and without spending too much time, yeah. how,
5: like what's, what's the, uh, how valuable is it to vet all your dependencies? Yeah. You know, how, depending on what you're doing, like one of the things that I, have uh, really enjoyed, like since, you know, using node and using NPM a lot is this, y- there's so many dependencies out there and you can do a search and you can find three different dependencies, for what you want to do usually, if it's anything common. Like, I need to do, I need a, a, to hit a Stripe API. Oh, there's probably two or three packages to that. I need to talk to Postgres. There's probably three or four different ORMs. You know, I need a web framework. There's Express, there's Happy, there's Koa, there's, you know, several different things. And you can kind of find a dependency that's more tailored to your needs and your team and things like that. And I think that's a extremely valuable resource to have over, you know, other ecosystems where it's like there's one... Right way, you know. In Ruby, you know, you have Rails, and you might have Sinatra, but you know, vast majority of people in the community are using one or two things instead of having six different options. Um, there is a cost involved with that. There is a different cost. I personally am more willing to pay that cost to have the options. Oh, that's and, and I think one of the reasons I'm I'm more willing to pay that cost is you know I come from a background where I originally started in .NET, where Things we were doing, we ended up writing a lot of our own custom code. Like we had tons, we had very little library dependencies, very little outside code. And when you're solving problems that, like, you know, this should have been solved before, or like the, the most common one for us was uh, in Windows opening a file. You know, in .NET there is an open file dialog. For our app, we couldn't use that because it was a mapping application, and we never wanted any. Modals that would pop up and cover up your map because it was absolutely critical for the users to always have view of their map and never have anything over that. So we had to have a file browse dialog in a component that could be in a toolbox below. That doesn't exist, right? So we we wrote our own. We found some off the shelf that you would buy, but it's not like a standard thing in the library like the open file dialog. Like for microsoft you know that's something they they solved and they never solved it. they never went back so we wrote our own we never could cover all the edge cases we bought some and they didn't never cover all the edge cases and it's just like this constant problem of like there was always qa finding bugs around the file browser something so you think is so simple mm-hmm. but as soon as you try to deviate from the most common use case and if there if there aren't options then you're stuck with either writing it yourself or buying something and dealing with the
1: shortcomings the
5: shortcomings of that so i'm really happy to be in the node ecosystem where you have a plethora of options and you know sometimes that's going to bite you sometimes you know some someone's gonna not follow simver and update the minimum node dependency and your builds are going to fail and you're gonna have to deal with that paying that cost then to me is better than having to maintain a bunch of custom code
1: so I have a question for you, Rodney. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's better to have one larger module that accomplishes more than one thing or have it broken down into smaller parts? Like if, if in the perfect world, mm-hmm. you could download one mm-hmm. gem or uh, no package. Or
5: yeah, whatever. I've definitely gotten to the point where I would prefer to have smaller ones that are single purpose and pull in more smaller things. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs>
1: the, uh,
5: there's um well, well, it, it's interesting there is a,
4: also a cost to having a lot of options right um I definitely kind of personally prefer I think having options to to no options but your case is also an interesting example I, every example is like unique snowflake like um uh, be, because it, it it was absolutely critical in your scenario to have certain um parameters for this thing right and um and, and in that case, I, I think your best approach is to kind of vet the few options that are there and then, and then just write your own. Because, it, it, you know, you have this critical
5: functionality that they can't. Yeah, but the problem there was we wrote our own. And uh-huh. we ended up spending an abundant amount of time handling all these edge cases for opening for picking a file versus actually solving the problems for our customer that they were paying us to solve. Man, like we were solving a solved problem, and taking away time from making the product better and solving the problems the product was supposed to solve, to open a file.
1: Yeah. Well, what What is the cost though? Like, if you have a lot of smaller ones and you're gonna have to vet every single one of those, is the cost greater to do that than to have you know, if you could use lodash for everything or you could have more modular? Is it is it better to have one that you've vetted completely and so you stick with that, or to break it down into smaller chunks and have to vet 12 different things instead of just one larger thing?
4: So th- oh, there's a little, I think there's m- multiple things packed in there. So um, having a lot of options around, ar- uh, for um, web applications, for example, right? That's, that's an easy like, well, this one has these properties and this one has these properties and they, and they kind of accommodate different things differently. Um, and, and if you have 50 of those, right, there's an obvious, like, you know, this is a big decision for the application. I need to find the one that's most suited for me. Or I'm just going to rely on um, reputation, right? But if you actually dive in and try and, and figure out who's the best, that, there's a huge cost there, right? Um, but the, the other... So that's why it's m- more costly, potentially, to have a market saturated with options. Um, the other thing in there is... is is the idea of you know, a dependency itself. So that was just like, that's true for all, like for food, for everything, right? If you want the best food and to be like provably the best, well, you have to try all of them, right? And um, but if you- It's like my goal. <laughs> <laughs> Squad bees H- Hattie Bees is, that, that's the best. Um, uh, but if you, but for a module, for this thing that you're gonna suck into your application, right? There, uh, even that act in and of itself is a risk. Right. So the, what happened with left bat? They could yank it. They can make a mistake. They can make a breaking change and not tell you. Right. Lots of things can go wrong um, when you when you just kind of suck in somebody else's code. Yeah. So I, there is a cost
5: to to bring in an independency. Right. So it, I think as long as you think about it and you address it and then keep it in your mind. But I think especially with a lot of people, you know, they're just going to they're on deadlines. They're going to pull it in and deal with it later. And it's, it's, that cost is going to be debt.
4: And, you know, let's accept it. I was having this conversation, conversation with Jay and the other day online about debt. It's not debt if you don't ever have to pay it, right? If, you, if it just happens yeah. to pan out and no one ever touches it again, like, pff, it's not debt. It's yeah. hard to call something debt um, in, in the tech world, period. Um, but but um, to your point, like, sometimes you're under deadline, right? Some, and, and you go to your client and you say, or business or whoever it is, right? And you say, listen, I don't have time to vet everything so I'm going to make some kind of judgment calls and it may not pan out and there may be a cost with this yeah (laughs) and I don't think there's anything wrong with that but um the game that we play a lot of times is well it's perfect and it's going to work out everything is awesome and I'm never going to have to touch this again and I'm I love that so and so wrote this and and Sometimes that does pan out, but sometimes, but but you know, the reality is that sometimes it doesn't.
0: Yeah, we're picking on left pad a little bit, but personally, I've never really ran into any problems without with outside dependencies, right? Like it's normally my code that's calling a dependency incorrectly that's the issue, or or something. Like it's usually my mistake versus using a third party library or a third party um, uh, package.
5: I ran into something this week, but. It luckily fixed itself. Right.
0: I mean, like I, I've ran into it before. Yeah. Like, I, like there was we were using, um, I think Bunyan or something for a Redis connection not for a node app to log sh- stuff. Sorry, <laughs> um, it's all stuff. of a sudden it became rated R. Rated PG <laughs> <yes, laughs> <rated R. Rated, laughs> It's PG 13 <PG-13. laughs> Okay, um, you got one. Yeah. The, so the, it just kept it hung to Redis connections. It's just never terminated them. So like we're just getting all these Redis connections just stacking up on a server, and all of a sudden you get um, file descriptor descriptor. Uh, uh, you run out of file descriptors on the on the server, and all of a sudden, it's not accepting any new connections because li- there was a default limit on the box. Um, so you know that was a bug in that package. Mm-hmm. But you know, well, if well, I would have wrote the same logger, I probably would have had fifty other bugs that that package solved for me. Right? Yeah, yeah,
4: fair enough. Um, but but uh, the, the, the the problems that I encounter more often are design problems. Right? It doesn't do what it what. Um, it doesn't fully solve my problem. Well, well, and that's a, it's a great not point. So if it's, not,
0: if it's not doing what you need it to do, absolutely write it yourself, right? Or, or, or pick like, piece some things together to make it work, right? All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud at Nash DevCast. You can also call in by going to NashDevCast.com slash call in and leave us a message. We might play it on the air. Also, be sure to like us on iTunes and Stitcher and all those other places you can find us so that we can, you know, get noticed. Oh, yeah. This was a Relationary production. Our amazing editor, Clark Buckner, has produced this episode. Be sure to... to Like him, too.
1: Be sure to like him, too. (laughs) Like him, too, guys.
5: (laughs) Be sure to like him, too. And Sassy (laughs) Pup. So coming up Wednesday... From 11.45 to 1 is the AWS user group lunch at 12 South Taproom. Uh, Wednesday night, there's two events. There's the there's Vaco's Geek Fling at Greenhouse Bar from 5 to 9, and Nash.js's, uh monthly meeting doing code kattas. Uh So Thursday, May 12, uh,
0: there's the winning in the IT hiring game, how to find the best, how to be the best. And that's at Cato Computer Science Center, and that's from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. The pinball night that we talked about a couple episodes back is happening between 5 to 9 at Raven, and that's a uh, 10 cannery row here in Nashville. Uh, Women Get IT meetup is from 6 to 8 at Argosy. I think that's how you said that. And
5: then Friday, the Nash DevOps meetup uh, is the second Friday of every month, and that's happening at Black Zone Brewing Company. Next Tuesday, May 17th, the Nashville Selenium User Group is meeting at Vaco's offices in Brentwood. There's also the Xamarin Evolve 2016 recap at LeanKit's offices. And then next Wednesday, May 18th, is an ex- Google I.O. Extended Nashville hosted by the Nashville Mobile Developer User Group at the Emma Vistro. Oh, you forgot about the Yet Another
0: Monad tutorial that's at the Assurance Building in the Elvis Presley Conference Room.
5: Sounds fancy. And that's from the Nashville Haskell users. Sweet. A lot of events coming up, but we'll talk about more of
0: those later. Till then, ta-ta. Oh, and uh, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, email us at show at nashdevcast.com.